0: Welcome to Appointed.
1: well it's amazing today we are joined on the podcast by Ms. bonnie brayton who i have known for well let's just say a long time right bonnie <laughs> and we have
0: some history yes it's wonderful to be with and you and she's today.
1: amazing um, leader of the of don canada or it uh, she's likely to say she's not the leader that uh, that is the entire group uh but Today is an especially important day because you are before the Supreme Court of Canada. So Bonnie, could you tell us a bit about who Dawn is, uh, who you are, and why it's so vitally important that we're doing this today, November
0: 6th, when you're before the Supreme Court of Canada in a very important case? Thanks, Kim. So yes, my name is Bonnie Rayton and I am the Executive Director of Dawn Canada, a national feminist disability organization, I'm delighted to say, in our 35th year in service this year not a year that we're calling a year of celebration, mind you, Kim, but a year of reflection because of course, 35 years into our work, we don't think that um, we need to be, we're in the place we need to be for women and girls with disabilities in Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, That said, Don Canada um, is actually today, as you point out uh, at a very important juncture in terms of a Supreme court case. We're delighted to be intervening with uh, LEAF, of course, leading and arch disability law in Ontario. Um, and, in fact, it's a case that I think really speaks to one of the reasons that the work that Don does is so important. Um, today's case, the Slider case, in, is um, a, a case that involves a woman with a disability. And, indeed, as we've heard, unfortunately, so many times, the high rates of gender-based violence is that this woman is before the courts, uh, the case is before the courts because this woman was... Um, sexually assaulted, repeatedly sexually assaulted, and in the lower courts, the question of her testimony and her reliability as a witness once again um, was brought forward. And I can say, Kim, because I know you know about the DAI case from 2012, which was again an important Supreme Court intervention with Leaf, where we established under DAI that it is really important and a key principle that women with disabilities be supported to speak their truth. And in fact, we developed a public service message for women with disabilities that said we can tell and we will tell back in 2012. And yet here we are in 2020 before the Supreme Court on another case where a woman who did tell is being questioned in terms of her abilities. So, you know, I think it, it speaks to why we're here and why I'm, I'm delighted to be with you today to talk more about our work and about uh, the situation for women and girls with disabilities in Canada today on november 6 2020 because it's not where it should be thanks kim
1: yeah no precisely and in fact as you're talking one of the things we want to talk about is the whole issue of uh, the need for adequate supports in from health housing employment education and of course protection from violence in the the ways Mm -hmm. that you defend uh, one of the issues, as you know, that, uh, well, we've both been working on for a long time are issues of poverty for those the, and the intersections of um, of racism, sexism, classism, uh, economic mm-hmm. discrimination, health discrimination. And yeah. last week, the illumination of two things that, you know, the convergence of two issues we're working on was the fact that, you um, women aren't particularly women with disabilities aren't in the situation they need to be and the the fact that um a guaranteed livable income has not been implemented which would assist uh all p- folks who are economically disadvantaged but particularly yeah. women with disabilities and linked to that a case of a woman who um, indicated she was actually wanting to not wanting to but was being offered medical assistance in dying and that she although she didn't want to die the prospect of her life without the supports that she needs uh, were was so untenable that she was actually quote-unquote choosing made choosing Mm -hmm. medical assistance and dying to me that's not a choice if in fact you don't have the basic necessities of of life if you don't have basic supports you don't have basic income then you Mm -hmm. can't call that a choice and and yet that's something where a that's being debated in the house of commons right now and soon will be in fact we're talking about doing a pre-study in the senate and soon will be debated in the senate as well and i'm Hmm. very interested in every our listeners hearing from you about your views on both guaranteed livable income and the intersections of this now with um, the lack of supports, as you've already outlined, and how that impacts the the choices. Quote, And I'm put, putting it in air quotes, obviously. Yes, um, I think um, that's that exactly the now. point, right? Yeah. The
0: air quotes is exactly the point, Kim, because that is the point. There aren't choices. There aren't the same kind of choices for everybody in this country. And that's been the case for a long time certainly you know to share with your listeners because I want to make sure they understand the size and scope is that 24% of women in Canada live with a disability and yet when it comes to social and economic policies they are virtually invisible. Um, As you may recall we released a report in 2018 called more than a footnote that was an extensive um, look at the situation of women and girls with disabilities in Canada and then using, again, a human rights framework and the social determinants of health, the same things you're speaking about, Kim, what is very clear is that women with disabilities have been footnoted um, for all the years we've certainly been in service. And, and like I said, historically, uh, a population that's been left out. And the woman whose story from of whom you speak, and you know, we have been g- given permission by Ruth to share it, so there will be much more about Ruth and her situation, I think, in the... In the the coming days as we, uh, as a community, try very hard to make sure that Canadians, parliamentarians and senators understand the gravitas of the changes that are proposed to made and the impact that they are already having on people with disabilities, including women with disabilities, especially women, um, again, who live at the intersection of, you know, race disability class, all the things you were speaking of in terms of all the things that further marginalize somebody, Kim. So, mm-hmm. yes, there's a really strong intersection between these issues and the situation we find ourselves in, in terms of the disability community being deeply concerned. Certainly, Don Kennedy is deeply concerned with the changes that are proposed to C7 because, we aren't giving people real choices in this country. We aren't giving people equal access to health. We know that through the pandemic, we saw triage policies emerging that that tell us that the medical system, the system that is supposed to support and, and um, give equal access to everyone, has a different understanding of its role when it comes to people with disabilities. And that the, um, the history of disability rights is connected to something called the medical model which saw people with disabilities differently and not from the same place of equality as other people. People with disabilities in this country believed we had moved past that when Canada signed the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities and recently ratified it and further add that last year passed the Accessible Canada Act. And yet we find ourselves today in a situation where the government is ready to move forward with legislation that will fundamentally set aside people with disabilities as a group for whom medical assistance in dying is is particularly emphasized, offered. And, you know, I don't want to enter into a long debate about MAID in this moment, but I think the connections have to be made clear and that the the well-intentioned idea behind MAID does not fully understand that we don't have a society where Putting these kind of um, this kind of legislation forward without safeguards, without civil society oversight is fundamentally going to place people with disabilities at risk, and some people with disabilities will, as you point out, take that choice because they feel they have no other
1: mm-hmm. Can you describe um, I'm- I know you're advocating for Ruth, but can you describe a mm-hmm. bit of her situation so that people can actually, you know, think about the the life circumstances she's in and why what, you know, why you and I don't consider her choices as real choices?
0: I think when, certainly I'll say a little bit about, about the situation and, and the specificity of it is that it's it's linked to her housing. She has environmental sensitivities. It's linked to the fact that she doesn't have a support system in place because there isn't something in place. And I think that's what we have to understand about Ruth's situation. There isn't somebody there for her. There is no one except Ruth advocating for Ruth. She tells a compelling story of the last two years, even before COVID, in terms of the self-advocacy she was doing to try and make sure she had all the things she needs to be safe, again, with her environmental sensitivities and the very specific needs she has in terms of housing, in terms of supports. But those things were not provided to her uh, directly in terms of her, her right to these things. And on top of that, she's now in further isolation. And, and because, of course, with COVID-19 and the exacerbation of everyone's situations, she has lost hope. Mm-hmm. The reason she's now looking at MAID as her only option is because she has tried everything and she feels abandoned. And I'm afraid that is how people with disabilities feel in many contexts in terms of what made and these changes to made represent for us. It's a, a failure by people to understand fundamentally that equality rights apply equally to everyone. And that if we were to take this same legislation and think of any other equality rights, uh, any other, sorry, rights holders being placed inside the legislation in the way that people with disabilities have been without the safeguards that we know are simply not there that they they would understand fully why this has to be um, really considered carefully and that we're counting on parliamentarians and the Senate to put the safeguards in place that Are not there now. I mean, I have to ask you Kim. I have never in my in the history seen such a rush to legislation uh, this is a change to the criminal code that hasn't been seen in terms of the rush to, to, to change in 30 years. Mm-hmm.
1: No, I agree. I mean, the question has been raised, why uh, not let it go back to the Supreme Court of Canada? Although, you know, it is the response, we, often we're saying we shouldn't leave it to the courts, we should make decisions. I'm mm. I'm very interested in the kind of oversight and safeguards that you think um, should be in place so that we, again, that um, our listeners and my colleagues and I can know what are some of the things you think we should be pushing for in terms of changes in in MAID. And, um, and whenever you feel comfortable putting in how the link to things like um, substantive equality and our calls for a guaranteed livable income assist that process as opposed right. to
0: detracting from it. Well, I was, going to say the, I was going to say Inclusion Canada, formerly known as CACL, of course, have been supporting something called the Vulnerable Persons Network and the Vulnerable Persons Standard since we first tabled made back in 2015. And what that calls for and what civil society organizations like DAWN and Inclusion Canada, BCADS and many others are calling for is for the government to understand that one of the fundamental tenets has to be civil society oversight. And I think what I'm going to suggest, Kim, is that something that I think is important to push out in the context of that is that that is a fundamental problem, that it is something that we saw through the COVID-19 pandemic crisis, which is that in the context of people in institutional settings, in long-term care, in prisons, in any um, congregated housing situation, their vulnerability under COVID-19 was so clear, and yet the only reason we know that these situations are arising is because now suddenly the media has been able to focus and bring cameras in and start to talk about this. I think one of the things that we need to talk about, and I was going to say, I'm not talking to the government right now, but I am talking to the social justice movement and civil society, which is that it is, is time to call the government on its commitment to signing the optional protocol on torture to, to mm-hmm. look at cat and the idea that we need to, to set up civil society oversight in this country, to monitor the situation is absolutely clear to me.
1: Well, as you know, that's something you and I have both been working on for some time. Yes. So, yeah, so. I would
0: really like to, like I said, see a, a really strong re-engagement from other human rights groups and civil society organizations, and indeed from the government itself, to the idea that it is time for Canada to sign CAT, the optional protocol on CAT, and that certainly what, what we can see is that this is an opportunity for federal, provincial, and territorial governments to own the situation that they find themselves in, in terms of what we now see is the situation in prisons, in institutions, in long-term care, in places where, again, there is no, nobody but the government and or the private um, enterprise looking on. And it is, is clear that this has placed a, you know, huge risks on, on, on the most vulnerable people in our population. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and it's interesting you draw the connection to, uh, obviously, long-term care homes, but also prisons, mm-hmm. because I don't know if you're aware, but the correctional investigator last week called for a moratorium on the use of made with prisoners until such time as the entire process can be reviewed, because, um, of course, again, a situation where how can you determine w- whether people are making uh, informed, meaningful choices or whether they're
0: acting out of desperation or lack of hope, as you mentioned. is the Well, situation? I was going to say uh, another point I think important to raise here is that the, the requirement of the government to do appropriate consultations with Indigenous people has not been honoured either. And that there is real, I think, legitimate reason to say that, there, that the rush to process, the rush to move this forward is not required that this idea that has been presented by the government, that there is a rush to move this forward is simply not true and that there are good reasons to put the brakes on this and to make sure that before we go forward, we have some real clarity around how this has to go forward. And I think going back to your other point, right? How we tie this back into the guaranteed livable income. We've had a commitment under the speech for the throne for a new benefit, a national benefit for people with disabilities. And indeed, you know, that's a wonderful thing. And I, I believe the commitment is real, but that's, a, that's something that's not going to come tomorrow. And it, it means that the people who have up to now, again, as we know, the first payments to people with disabilities rolled out in October in terms of additional supports for COVID-19. So these people were now in November. When, when are we going to look at having something in place that will make sure that the, the most vulnerable people, people with disabilities who have increased costs, increased risks through COVID-19, Will be put in place mm-hmm. um so
1: the the question that's been raised with me by some of mm-hmm. my colleagues when i raise the issue of uh this the circumstances for people with disabilities
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: is that you know the the case that was brought in quebec that prompted. Right, these the patients, Trish and you
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That these were individuals with disabilities. So yeah. these are people with disabilities um, arguing it. One of my questions mm. back is are these people with disabilities
0: who that have a not.
1: degree of privilege, have a degree of resources available mm-hmm. that many of the folks that you and I know may not. Yeah. And is,
0: I, I'm just interested in your perspective on it. I think there's a a lot of things to come at in terms of that, Kim. The first thing I'd like to share just as a a point of, you know, how uh, in terms of the lines get blurred between, you know, my professional occupation, my, the space I occupy as a woman with a disability. I actually have the same disability as the woman from Quebec. It's called post-folio syndrome. And, you know, I think it points to, something important here, which is the vulnerability of a decision like the one they took in Quebec, because it's based on um, not really, you know, even in the example of this woman, I, I was going to say, post polio syndrome can have uh, one of the side effects can be depression. Mm -hmm. And if we talk about the changes to made and start to think about what could happen in this scenario. Right. And I was going to say, let's use me as an example, 10 years from now, I go into a hospital in Quebec and my file says I have post polio syndrome and I'm inside a medical system that is, has a framework for MAID and supports it in a, in a particular way. The connection between my depression, my post polio and the possibility that I would be offered MAID are real. We have strong evidence from conversations we've had from evidence that's been gathered by the community that people with disabilities, first of all, are often, as they enter the medical system, um, I wouldn't say directly offered made, but there's a question around, do you have an advanced directive? That is something we heard all the time from people with disabilities during COVID-19. You know, there's a very sinister kind of, like I said, underlying truth about an ableist society that is something that is difficult to name in these particular situations. But I think it's very important for us to understand that in terms of Gladue Truchon, it is, as, as you point out, not something that is a reflection of what the majority of people with disabilities feel. And like I said, I, I fail to understand why, why the governments at the federal, provincial, and territorial level will not cede to the idea that with, again, you know, a quarter of the population, if we use the example of women, one quarter of the population feels vulnerable because of MAID but we won't do the research, takes the extra time to understand why that, that is. We won't look properly and do proper disaggregated analysis of who's accessed it in the past. What is the resistance? Like I said, for me, like I said, Kim, it just feels like this is an issue that's been politicized and that shouldn't be. This is so fundamental. This is somebody will live or die if we don't mm-hmm. get this right. And mm-hmm. I, I just, like I said, I'm, I'm shocked at the, at the rush to get this done. And I, I, like I said, it's the one place where I'm, I'm really lost because this government has shown a lot of progress in terms of specific things Minister Qualtra has moved forward. But this feels like such a step back, and it feels like such a step back in terms of a commitment that we had understood was to human rights for everyone in every way, not just in some places. And like I said, in the context of MAID, it simply isn't being equally applied, uh, applied you know? It, it is very much this question around, you know who's who's really equal i don't know if you know I, earlier this month i had the honor to be on a panel and and spoke about about the person case in the context of who in this country is a person and of course indigenous women women with disabilities and black women still don't feel that connection and yet we like i said as a society are still prepared to backdoor into made as something that is a solution to end of life issues to the kind of situations that make Ruth, that same we spoke about earlier, feel that the only choice she has left now is made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it strikes me
1: our discussion would be very different if we did have uh, the kinds of social health and economic supports that we've been advocating, your organization
0: mm-hmm.
1: and others in coalition have been arguing for a long time that if, in fact... Uh, the housing, housing was not an issue and the human right uh, analysis and basis for entitlement Mm. to housing and entitlement to income, entitlement to sports was an issue. Then, then we'd be in a
0: different place talking about choices, it strikes me. Exactly, Kim, if we just think of Ruth in the context of her housing, in the context of, you know, proper access to the support she needs to maintain health. The fact that no she's not somebody who's employable at this time because she's not in a situation you know we don't even start with the basic of trying to figure out how we can support a person before we've already got them in the situation where the only thing we can offer them is the guaranteed livable income because we haven't as a society tried to deconstruct how we can do better on every level Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. there's a, a really important piece missing in all of this which is that we always revert back to that and I agree with you. We have to have the guaranteed livable income in place because we are 10 or 15 years away if we sit down now and start focusing, right, on getting to a place where it's all those things, where employment, education, being free of violence, housing, and health are not something that you have to fight for. They're your right, and they are there for you, and you can become the person you aspire to be because that's all Ruth wants. Yeah. That's all she wants. She just wants housing. She just wants to be able to live her life. And she and other people from the community still feel that that isn't something that people think is their right. Mm -hmm. And and I think we can do better. And I think the guaranteed livable income is the first thing we need to do, not just for people with disabilities, but for all people in Canada. And, And I will say, Kim, I hope what we start to talk about, and I hope the pivot is to how we are going to move Canada to becoming a caring economy and how we become global leaders in showing why a caring economy, right, that is not exclusively focused on capitalism is the kind of democracy we want in Canada.
1: I absolutely agree. As you probably know, I've been talking about the fact that we should talk about our... Post-pandemic recovery, not just in the context of GDP, but in overall well-being, and so looking at some of the countries that are looking to those sorts of approaches, what is particularly some of the European and Scandinavian countries where they've uh, taken those kinds of approaches. The, the saw, other,
0: yeah, I saw a piece the other day from the UK, and again, like I said, the the same kind of messages are emerging from social justice movements across the globe, which is to understand that indeed the pandemic sets us on a new course.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and it makes it clear that the model that has been developed that is sustaining the 1% that is sustaining the capitalist model is not the one we aspire to and not the one we should be investing in the fact that the speech from the throne included childcare and some key recognitions around you know starting to move towards understanding that a lot of the jobs that women occupy there's still a huge equity issue in terms of how we pay healthcare workers and front care mm-hmm. frontline care workers and of course the unpaid care workers, because I'll just remind you and all our, your listeners of another thing, which is that more than half of all unpaid caregiving in this country is being done by a woman with a disability. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Well, because she's not attached to the workforce, because, <laughs> because like I said, she can't get at those things. And instead, she's relegated, if you will, to the caregiving role. And mm-hmm. again, we don't, we don't honor unpaid caregiving. What we do is just let people do unpaid caregiving until can, they can't do it anymore.
1: Yep. And
0: that's it. We don't, you know, like I said, we've got some real work to do on how we look at how we rebuild this economy. So that it is about women. It, it is about uh, our um, most marginalized communities. And it is about all of us instead of some of us having a good recovery. hmm
1: Absolutely. And, you know, as you were talking about that, I was reminded that, you know, part of my interest in looking into this issue beyond the work that we've done, um, Mm. as you may know, my mom died in a long term care facility, and she had uh, dementia, and, and (sighs) the incredible work that was being done by women, mostly women of color, um, Mm -hmm. women working two and three jobs uh, as personal support workers, given seven minutes to get her up out of bed and ready and going to breakfast when she couldn't feed herself. And during that period, I found out also that um, in addition to the the information you've just provided, a full 25 to 30% of most of the business models of those care homes involves Uh, some family member or somebody from the community, Mm -hmm. somebody in that person's circle being part of the caregiving team, not officially, but unofficially because they come and visit, they feed. and, And with my mom, we were going in regularly and, you know, i know that had we been able to go in regularly still during the pandemic she mm-hmm. likely would not have died in july and yes and she wouldn't have ended up with the, the type of infection that caused her to die and so yeah. so those are those are realities and it it made me think about um, the the limited opportunities that we've talked about with ruth and why you're before the supreme mm-hmm. court of canada and the fact yeah. that it is often these cases are driven in, by two factors one is the people who have the resources to be able to bring a case in this yep. in this case Truchon and Gladue went to the court in Quebec yep. um, but usually the people who are most impacted by the inequities and the substantive inequality don't have mm-hmm. the resources or the um Uh, the links to people who have the resources of the authority to actually bring these cases and so vitally important that the types of interventions that dawn does happen Mm. can you talk a bit about that even how the ability to access or exercise your rights is limited based on you know if you're one of the, the people who is supposed to be in the protected grounds of whether it's the charter or human rights how difficult it is to actually exercise those rights and and who ends up driving the decisions that we we end up living with uh, whether it's these this court case or other ones
0: Mm. well i was going to say you know just looking at it from most those two cases right the dai decision and and this one as it goes forward you know it is as you point out in terms of how 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 we Move from you know decisions that appear to make things right or suggest the right thing to actually you know making those things real. And you know one of the things that I'm I'm looking at right now, of course, and and, and I'm pleased is Canada has finally committed to the national action plan on gender-based violence, the one the UN model. Mm-hmm. And the the UN model, you know, as you know, Kim, is a ten-year window.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, I just said at the front end of this interview. Dawn's, you know, in the middle of our 35th year, and again, not celebrating, reflecting and, you know, looking forward. And the 10-year window that, that um, the National Action Plan has is the same one that Dawn is putting in front of ourselves and in front of all our partners and the federal government and all the folks we work with, and, and hopefully a lot more that, that up to now haven't done anything to commit to, like I said, fully one quarter of all women in this country, women with disabilities that you know, one of the things that we really are struggling with is why there's still only Don focused on this issue. And, and like I said, it's not to say that I don't think lots of other folks don't care, but nobody has centered that issue. And I, I do think, like I said, we have to as a society understand that if one quarter of all women in this country have the highest rates of gender-based violence, the highest rates of poverty, they're struggling with housing, they don't have equal access to education, the rates of violence are twice they are to other women and again add indigenous or black and you have higher rates of disabilities so the rates of disability among indigenous women is you know at 35 percent, and you begin to understand that we have a really deep deeply systemic ableist society that in many cases doesn't even understand the word ableism far less that we're we're doing this to like i said fully one quarter of our population has been invisibilized in almost every conversation set aside. No, that's that's what we have to change is this idea that it's a siloed approach to human rights. It's an all in approach to human rights. The only way we are going to change is when we begin to understand that all rights holders need to stand together because intersectional human rights isn't a concept. It's what people live. People Mm -hmm. live discrimination from different places on different days. And it's about a different thing on a different day. You know, one day it's your housing. Another day it might be your transportation. And another day it's just those little microaggressions that you get Mm -hmm. because you have a disability or because you're Black or you're Indigenous. And so, you know, what I will say, Kim, is that I really think that the most fundamental thing that we have to do is start to look at how we work collaboratively as a society across every area from a a place of the margins instead of from the centre where all the privilege exists. Because that's how we're going to get this right. And, and you know, I'm full of hope. I'm a very much a glass half full person. But it is going to take more than just an organization like Dan, Dawn Canada. It's going to take people like you having conversations like this one and, and centering conversations like you are and, and, and the position that, that needs to be taken when we move forward to the next steps of this legislation. That people have to understand that it's not an us and them thing it's all of us and if we don't understand that it's it's something that you know like i said lots of people don't don't have sort of a really deep understanding of, of a disabled life until it's beside them or until they live it mm-hmm. and i know that it's the same for many other forms of discrimination but we have to have to understand that we are only a, a, um a, we can only hold ourselves up as a country with the people that, that are the furthest from the center with the most marginalized. And until we get that right, like I said, we, we have a lot of work to do <laughs> to quote Jean Cartier. I guess he's the guy who said that a long time ago. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We still do. And he said it a long time ago, and I'm afraid we're still there. We've got a lot of work to do. But like I said, I'm optimistic because I do think one of the things that, that comes through from COVID-19 is it's been really difficult and there's all kinds of things about it that have been hard. But it's also been a real opportunity for us to be able to see a different way
1: too so absolutely there's, there's where
0: there's where i want to want to rest my hope is on on where we go next
1: absolutely. and that caring,
0: that caring economy right that's the aspiration is to move from from where we are to being the kind of country that that other people really really understand is is a way forward for all of us
1: well, i can 't think of a better place to conclude this conversation for now, just for now. Yeah. temporary conclude. Thank you so much, Bonnie, for all the amazing work you do and the work of Don Canada and the many contributions you make and uh, really a huge honor and a humbling privilege and uh, the, to have you with us today and I look forward to continuing to both follow and hopefully be part of the the work you're doing. And thank you for not just the hope you have, but the incredible energy, enthusiasm and tenacity that you bring to all of the issues you you take on.
0: Well, thank you, Kim. It's an honor to to, uh, be on the show with you. And, And again, my sincere thanks on behalf of the community for the leadership you've shown before when you were with Elizabeth Fry, but of course, since you've been in the Senate, and the voice you've given to so many people who so often don't feel that they have a voice at that table
1: well if ever i stop doing it you're part of the group that needs to get me out of here because if i ever (laughs) (laughs) stop so thank thanks again bonnie and you take good care right yeah
0: you too stay safe thanks thanks bye-bye